Welcome to Beyond the Small Talk, podcast for leaders and educators, hosted by me, Andrew Howie, and you, Alice Beveridge. On our show, we delve deeper than the surface level small talk and explore the important topics of well-being and self-care in the education sector. We understand the challenges and demands that come with being a leader or educator, and our goal is to provide you with some practical tips, strategies and resources to help you prioritise your own well-being while still excelling in your role. So join us as we discuss a variety of topics related to self-care, mental health and work-life balance with experts and educators who have first-hand experience navigating these issues. Let's take a step beyond the small talk and prioritise our own well-being so that we can be the best version of ourselves for our students and our colleagues. Welcome to this week's episode. Now, I am recording this introduction myself uh, because Alice and I have been out and about in schools this week. But we were very fortunate at the start of this week to sit down with Sahir Permal and Jonathan Wood from Place to Be. Now, they're going to introduce themselves fully in the episode. But just in case you're not aware of Place to Be and the work that they do in school, it will say here's the director for Scotland and Jonathan is an area manager for Scotland East. And they work for Place to Be who offer school-based mental health interventions and prevention and support for all stakeholders within schools. Uh, so as I say, Jonathan and Sahir are going to introduce themselves. So let's go over to the episode and I hope you enjoy. And welcome to the podcast, Sahir and Jonathan, it is lovely to have you here. How are you both? Yeah, good, thanks. Very well, thank you. Brilliant. Would you like to just take a moment, Sahir, to give us a bit of an insight into yourself and what your role is and what place to be um, is offering? And then we'll come across to you, Jonathan, and start unpicking everything in that wonderful brain of yours. Um, yeah, Sahir, do you want to just give us a bit of a bit of background? Yes, uh, delighted to. So I'm Sahir. I'm the director for Scotland at Place to Be, uh, which is a children's mental health charity that works uh, primarily in schools. So we offer school-based mental health services that uh, work with the whole school community. That's the, the crucial part. So it's early intervention and prevention-based approaches, uh, clinical approaches that help support children and young people, their teachers, in fact, all staff members in the school. There's not any discrimination between teachers and non-teaching staff, the head teacher, and also parents and families that we work with. Um, and the, the, as I said, it's early intervention and prevention of mental health issues, addressing them sort of before they, they escalate and before they grow with the child. And alongside that, we provide uh, specialist mental health training within education. And uh, we also develop the children's mental health workforce by providing specialist sort of training courses there as well. So my role is an operational management and leadership role I oversee. Uh, the, the operations are delivered across the whole of Scotland and I'm ably supported by all of my wonderful area managers of which Jonathan is one. Brilliant and Jonathan would you like to just give us a little overview of yourself before we start digging into some of these big juicy topics today? Yeah I'm Jonathan and um, I am as Sahir says the area manager for Scotland East. Um, my background is originally as a therapist, so I trained as a psychotherapist and, and an art therapist and um, worked for some 20, 25 years, mostly doing that work. And since being at Place to Be, I've worked in management, um, a lot of management of services and people responsible for delivering those services. So I'm very interested in both these areas, psychotherapy as a sort of individual intervention, but also 
uh, the sorts of things that managers have to deal with on an on everyday basis in terms of staff yeah and when we spoke a few days ago just ahead of recording today we had really quite an interesting conversation around the impact of anxiety on school leaders so anxiety for themselves in terms of managing their own anxiety but also that kind of second-hand anxiety that we're seeing a lot of when either children and young people or members of staff or families are processing all the different challenges that they are facing and that's really going to form the basis of today's conversation isn't it um, and when we were speaking the other day you were saying that one of your real sort of clinical areas of interest is anxiety what is it that's led you to focus on this in terms of your clinical work? Yeah, I think I think a lot of that is to do with the management of staff and how it impacts and and where this anxiety that that people working on frontline jobs uh, comes from. So, I mean, one of the things that Place to Be does is it offers a whole school approach, which is working with children, it's working with parents, but it's also offering on-site consultancy to staff. If you trained as a therapist, um, for every six hours of work you do, you're expected to have an hour's clinical supervision, so an hour's reflective space. Now, if you compare that to a teacher who's working for a year in front of 30 kids uh, every day, the whole day, what would they get in terms of actual support about the impact of those children on them? Perhaps an appraisal at the end of the year but probably not very much ongoing support. What we learn as psychotherapists, and I think what teachers are experiencing, absolutely really, is that even with the best intention in the world, even with your, 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 you know, your best professional hat on, faced with, with, with young people, children who are in a distressed or disturbed state, um, who are perhaps aggressive or challenging in some way, even though you might manage that in the moment, um, the actual impact on you comes much later, um, can be devastating. I was looking at stats before I came on really, but something like 8% of teaching staff are expected to leave annually the profession. And a lot of those are quite newly qualified teaching staff. So something's going on. It's not just workload. It's, it's the amount of things that people, I think, have to deal with. The fact that teachers are more and more turned into frontline staff, um, facing a range of problems which nobody else is actually dealing with them, some of them psychological, emotional, some of them psychiatric, in fact. And we're recording this, Jonathan. It's the start of Mental Health Awareness Week, and the, the real focus is anxiety. It's yeah. an area which is of great interest in the work that we do in schools, and but something which sometimes there's misconceptions about. What does it look like in a school? Well, I suppose anxiety per se is is a very uncomfortable state. We've all we've all been anxious in in a passing way, but I suppose if you get into a kind of loop of anxiety, it's um, what, what people say about it is it's the fight and flight mechanism, mechanism gone into overdrive, really. You've got nowhere to run to. You've got nothing to fight. You're just awash with fears, worries, 
um, sometimes aches and pains. The trouble with anxieties is a very free-floating concept. So sometimes you can feel terrible stomach ache uh, in relation to nothing particularly, but anxiety may be the source of that. So anxiety is something which builds up in people because they've not got an opportunity to dis discharge some of these feelings, I think. Um, so if you get if you spend if you spend an hour with a very disturbed child, very upset child, you can't make any movement on the work with that child. You can't get them into a safe place. You can't get a CAMS appointment, all the sorts of things that people are facing all the time. You might go home at the end of the day and feel great and then suddenly get uh, an, an anxiety later in the day about something completely different. My God, how am I going to? Well, cook the tea tonight. Oh, I don't know. I don't feel like going out. You know, it can transfer to anything. So that professional um, response to an actual tense and challenging situation, then if it doesn't get discharged, can can creep up on you and, and hit you somewhere else. I suppose there's a couple of sides to that. And, and I'm, I'm so interested in this area. I'm thinking of pupils and how we, if they're displaying signs of anxiety or being anxious that and are those words can i use them interchangeably being anxious and anxiety are they are they similar or is that yeah. okay to do that yeah and um, how you can help that child in the moment deal with that i know in terms of a long-term solution there's there's a lot that that we would put into place in action but in those moments how to help but also as a practitioner myself as a as a teacher and as a previous leader within a primary school supporting staff around you and also looking after yourself there's a a whole range of things that we we can hopefully pick up with with both of you and the the discussions that we're going to have yeah yeah i mean there's 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 lots of approaches to anxiety i think and a lot of them center on um either discharging the feeling the fizzy fuzzy feeling that you're getting uh or identifying where it is in you so there's something about trying to get somebody to center rather than to fly off at tangents about, oh, it could be this, it could be that, all of that stuff. When people feel anxious, the, the first question I think is, where, where are you feeling this? And what it comes down to often is that people feel it kind of in the pit of the stomach. So the place just below the belly button, what used to be called the solar plexus, still is, I guess. One really easy first aid thing to get a cushion and put it over the solar plexus and hold it there and then just breathe breathe deeply so that's that's one way to settle that in the moment in a longer term thing maybe you've got to think about exercise you could think about mindfulness you could think about cognitive behavior therapy which is a kind of short-term talking therapy which is to um help rationalize some of these often irrational feelings and thoughts that you get but in the moment it's about centering the person whether it's you whether it's the child you're talking to into their body again nothing is going to happen right now the world is not going to end the sky is not going to fall it's that kind of response calmness breathing holding your stomach <laughs> with the cushion on it so something that I see a lot when I'm working with coaching clients that are dealing with anxiety is that often 
they kind of push through while they're if like if they themselves suffer from anxiety they kind of push through that and then it hits them more but often they don't realize those little signs or symptoms along the way so although you're saying like often it's that that sort of pit of the stomach I know for me I've been quite fortunate I don't suffer from huge amounts of anxiety I have friends that have really high levels of anxiety and live with it all day every day but I know that if there is something that's going on for me like my my manifestation of it is I'm a picker like I sit and I pick my thumbs like this and it's often not until I'm obviously in a good place just now because my thumbs are nice and healthy but Sometimes that'll get down to like, like raw, like absolute like raw bleeding thumbs before I even realise that, oh, there may be something going on. Are there other manifestations that you're seeing a lot of that people can be looking out for either in themselves or others? Because I think often we can assume that people will experience something the same way that we do, where if we're working with children and staff and ourselves in a sort of a school and organise that sort of organisation, are we going to see it come out in lots of different ways obviously with children it might become more behavioral what does that look like for for all of those different stakeholders in that do you think that's a big question I mean what you're describing is a kind of displacement activity so when we talk about discharging anxiety um scratching your fingers or picking at things or that sort of nervousness is is perhaps an early sign that that something is going on and it's how to interrupt that that's that's the really tricky thing how do you how do you identify that and how then do you interrupt it whether it's with breathing or as we said earlier i think the worst case the, the worst cases are conversational where you're talking to somebody and they say well i'm anxious about this and you listen through that and then say well really there's nothing to be anxious and then they about and then they'll say Yes, I know that, but I'm actually now really anxious about this. And it just moves in around. That's what we'd call free-floating anxiety. And that's the most terrible thing to be caught in. You can't, you can't quite catch it. You can't quite pin it down. I think you want to say something there, Sahia. I was just thinking about my children. I've got a, um, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And they're really into the Mr. Men franchise at the moment. And we read Mr. Worry the other day. And exactly what you just said, Jonathan, you know, this worry about one thing and then worrying about the fact you've got nothing to worry about or worrying about something else. You know, so I think sometimes that can happen, can't it? Where there's, yeah, you find things to worry about because that, that there's something else going on. It's not about the thing that, that you're saying. And the other thing I wanted to come in on really is, is this idea which you'll be familiar with I'm sure Andrew and Alice you know working in schools as we are of just what's happening in schools at the moment and the things that are making people anxious who maybe aren't just predisposed to being anxious maybe haven't felt this before I put myself in the same category as you Alice you know I'm not naturally I suppose or not uh, disposed to being particularly anxious but I hear some of the things happening in schools and I think god if I was a teacher again I was in a past life I don't know how I'd be coping with this. So I think we just have to recognise that some of the things that are happening now, the escalation of seriousness and issues, the children in primary schools going out into the playground at break time with a rope, trying to find somewhere to end their lives. You know, these head teachers who've been in that post for 20 years who haven't seen that kind of thing happening before. And so the impact of those things on individuals in the school, they may not have experienced those kind of things happening. They might be having unprecedented responses because to unprecedented events and um, you know and so there's something there around what's causing all of this anxiety 
uh, and and trying to deal with the the root cause of that as well as manage the symptoms within the individual you know the the individual might not be the right locus for uh sort of dealing with all of this sometimes you have to as you said before Andrew you of course have to help people in crisis you also have to look at well, what's got them there and as unprecedented as you're saying that the the discussions we have in schools and with teachers and with pupils it's it's at a different level even in the couple of years since I've been a teacher um the the burden and the strain on young people uh, I've got a couple of young children my, my daughter's nine and quite often she'll have a sore stomach and we've got to go collect her from the school and and it's these things of you're you're trying to without imposing the idea that are you worried about something because I think sometimes that's where she holds it that that Mm. that feeling so you're trying mm. to be delicate around that I don't want to ask her too much and go into too much detail but yes there's so much in terms of she's not part of something online and she's not got a phone so she feels left out and then when you get the phone you're opening up a whole different world of mm. of, of mm. difference there as well so it's it's yeah that big root problem is is one thing and something that I think place to be you are certainly on hand to assist lots of schools and leaders and in, in that area hopefully one of the key things we do, which we're really proud of, is offer um, offer spaces for children and for adults. As Jonathan said, there's that consultation space for, for staff, but there's also a drop-in easily access session we call Place to Talk uh, for children and young people. And because our practitioners are embedded within the schools that they work in, they are there, their door is open, literally, metaphorically, for children to drop a little note and uh, drop a slip in the box outside their door and be seen lunchtime or break time or at the end of the day on the same day, sometimes the next day. And it's absolutely amazing how important that that space is. Uh, it's not a targeted intervention. It's not someone, you know, Alice, you were saying before, how do you spot signs in other people? Actually, Sometimes by the time you sort signs in other people, it's not too late, but it's certainly later than it could have been. If they had a space to go when they first identified something was wrong, or they just wanted to talk about something, they just wanted to check something out, they might not even identify something's wrong. And we have children going to place to talk, saying oh, the usual things, I've fallen out with my friends, or my dog died this morning, or this happened, or that happened. And it's a clinical therapeutic space to go and just have a quick 10 minute conversation which may help to find a solution to leave you walking out, feeling out of that session, feeling that you've been listened to, you've been seen, you've been heard, and it can nip something in the bud that would otherwise escalate to a point where others might start to notice a problem and you might need a targeted, expensive, you know, intervention that might have a very long waiting list. So the way to go is that is that early intervention, but but really crucially, people being able to self-refer without having to go through an adult sometimes is actually really helpful. And, and head teachers that... I speak to routinely as part of my role um, say with surprising frequency that they have picked up things through place to talk that they just didn't know were happening you know and they wouldn't have known were happening had children not had a space to go to to be a trusted adult who was outside of their you know in but not part of if you like their school um, so that's essential whether it was schools can provide if possible someone in that kind of easily accessed way without needing a mediating adult. I mean, what you're saying is is absolutely spot on. And I think that idea that it's okay to talk is a great idea, but actually it's not okay to talk for a lot of people. They don't come from families where it's okay to talk. It's it's sometimes not the message which is offered in schools because schools are so busy and um you know there's so many demands on teachers' time that actually a child just wanting to talk, that spontaneous space 
is not necessarily there. So I think all that adds adds to this this issue. I mean, if if yeah, if there's an agency that can produce like like Place to Be does a space for people to come into and talk and start building that culture that it's okay to talk about anything, fine. And have you, to... as an organisation, obviously we say that we've been living through unprecedented times. Have you seen a huge increase in need for your services? Do you think that need was always there and we're dealing with it differently? Or like, because obviously everybody has lots of conversations of COVID, COVID, COVID. Obviously COVID has had a huge impact on this, but do you think this would have happened anyway, but maybe over a slightly longer period of time? Or do you think that that sort of COVID period has had a long-term detrimental impact on well-being for children, young people and adults? It's a big question. I mean, I think it's had an impact, definitely had an impact. And one of the impacts was it returned people to the social media space, a lot of people, much more intensely than perhaps they had been before. An unbroken kind of... And that and social media spaces are very un, unmediated space. Um, there are no playground assistants there. There are nobody to really police that or look after the people on it. So I think it's a much more dangerous space um, than when children were coming to school. So yeah, that's had an impact, but Sihir, so you might have some thoughts on that too. I'd definitely agree with you there, Jonathan, that it's had an impact undeniably, but Place to Be has been around for 25 years. Sam H has been around for a hundred years. You know, this need has clearly been there from far, far longer than COVID. A need for, um, for, for, well, somewhere to talk, as Jonathan said, people to address mental health issues and difficulties they might be having. There's no doubt COVID has caused a sort of unique, perhaps, acceleration of some of those issues or thrown up things that we, uh, in an awareness of these things that wasn't there before. But it's just one part of the, the jigsaw. It certainly isn't the thing that has in itself caused all of this to happen. You know, we're not where we are now just because of COVID and things weren't brilliant and rosy before that, before 2020. Um, the, the kind of things we're seeing now have taken a generation or more to actually build up to this point. And it's, it's, it's all of society. And it's what makes it challenging to address. You know, we're here providing mental health services in schools and that's all and well and it has an impact and that's why we do it. But we can't solve these problems on our own. No one individual can, no one organisation can. It's a confluence of, of COVID, of um, increasing social media use, of all sorts of uh, sexting as we know about now, you know, of AI and all the worries around AI, of genuine climate anxiety as we hear more and more about how the world's going to end. All these things are coming together, plus other things I haven't mentioned to, I think, create, you know, lack of outdoor spaces for lots of people, increasing poverty, which is outrageous in our times. In 2023, we're talking about increasing child poverty in Scotland. How is this possible? So all these things come together, I think, plus others to create a picture which is not in the power of any one organisation or potentially even the government in itself to, to solve. And um, that's why we are where we are. COVID is, is one part of that picture, I think. When you're, there's so much to pick up on there, but I was going to, to go back, was that idea of the, the talking and knowing it's okay to talk and, and having time for that. I think in one of the discussions Alice and I had had previously and in speaking to school leaders in the last couple of weeks, it's, it's that ability to have those moments to talk because if you're sitting down and you're planning your next in-service day or even thinking to August in-service days and things like that, 
they're so structured you've got everything that has to be fired in there and where's that moment to talk and that would be a, a structured moment but within the week for teachers and staff if you're always assessing and looking at work and it's numeracy and it's literacy when where's that moment for where's the moment in the discussions between me as a leader and my team to have those times to talk with a bit of structure and, and knowing that I'm on hand to do that or am I always being called away as a leader to do other things and and I think that's the whole way down from your regional groups in terms of who looks after the head teachers, because the head teachers are looking after the leadership team and then the leadership team are looking after the teachers and, and the teachers and the children. I always felt like you're everyone's trying their best to keep things away from the people below them, but you don't always see the the difficulty of the person above you. And, and that's one of my thoughts of who looks after these people. And again, that's where an organization like place to be really proves invaluable if people can can reach out and, and have that awareness of what support is there. It's true, but it, it's also a professional cultural issue, isn't it? So if you think that, I think one of the difficulties with the leaders of, of, of an organization offering that space for, for their staff to talk is that it might get muddled up with the management of those staff. So would I feel safe coming to well, of course, I'd feel safe coming to talk to Sahir about anything. But if there was a if there was a sort of hint that maybe my um, working practice would be implicated in that, that might be difficult. So with counsellors, with psychotherapists, it's a it's a separate person, somebody who doesn't have any power to, um, yeah, well, manage you, impact on you. Well, I was just thinking about this. Is it okay to talk? And I think it's, I think we're still in early days, you know, I mean, I'm getting on a bit, but I came from a family where you didn't talk about feelings. And I know lots of families today where you don't talk about feelings, you kind of get on with it. So even though we might think we've advanced somewhere, there's a lot, there's a lot to do culturally to understand that this is a valid, valid way to talk about things. I still think the language we develop around feelings is from not having grown up and been able to speak about feelings. I still don't think I have the language to speak about them. Like sometimes I'm just sad. Like I can't tell, I don't have the language. And we speak to pupils in school about there's a whole range of positive emotions. There's a whole range of negative emotions. If you can identify them and discuss them, it's you have that vocabulary because then I can, I, I sort of can better understand the way I'm feeling. But um, hopefully over time with that, improvement in the way that we speak to each other our vocabulary and our understanding will will hopefully continue to develop well i Something think you know so here's reference that very important theoretical set of books the mr men books so there are there are attempts yeah yeah yeah, something I've definitely noticed in my time doing what I do at Tree of Knowledge, working with big groups of people in that sort of well-being space, you know, talking about stress and apathy and boredom and how we get into flow and all of these things that can, if left unattended, can trip into higher levels of anxiety or depression. I remember standing up in front of groups of secondary staff probably 10, 11 years ago, and talking about stress and having people scoff and go, oh, it's not real, that's not a real thing. Whereas now there's a, but I think there's been a shift in terms of, I very rarely meet people now that deny that stress and anxiety are real. You know, like there's much more conversation about, yes, this is real. And it's almost like that shift has happened. The floodgates have opened 
and then there's not that space to deal with it of well stress is real and if we're acknowledging that it's real and if we're acknowledging that anxiety is real we need the mechanisms in place to support that and even in my own practice something I've started doing since I've been delivering online if I, I work with big groups online all the time but I work with them for like 10 to 12 weeks so I get to know them really well first thing that I ask is score out of 10 how you're doing you know and it's just it's something really simple yeah. but it very very quickly tells me as a practitioner in that space is everyone okay you know if somebody's coming in they're saying they're a two or a three or somebody that normally answers doesn't answer at all I'm using that instantly like as soon as we're in a breakout room conversation or at the break or after that session like when you're in person it's much easier to kind of check in and say are you okay but there's so much education is happening in a virtual space as well now that those natural conversations don't always have the same space that they did before so do you think there's things that people can be doing that teachers and classrooms can be doing that leaders can be doing and just implementing into their practice regularly to help raise awareness of managing that emotional side of things well there are what I was thinking listening to you, though, is that there's always a temptation when a negative feeling surfaces, let's say like anxiety. Um, what are we going to do with it? Let's do something with it. Let's actually let's banish it. Let's get rid of it as quickly as we can. We aspire to something better than that. Actually, I think the first the first thing is what are you feeling? And let's just let's just stay with that a little bit. Let's just experience what that is for you so that it can breathe and so that it, it can give you back some of the meaning. Why, why are you feeling like this? If we rush too quickly to make things better for people, then that's just going to exacerbate the whole anxiety thing. That's been a big focus in, in some of my work. I, my some sort of academic background is positive psychology. And there's been this big shift in positive psychology of not ignoring or minimizing or demonizing those negative behaviors mm. obviously positive psychology kind of grew out of the study of anxiety and depression of if we have these more negative experiences what's the flip side of it and how do we build resilience and how do we make people experience more flow and have higher levels of subjective well-being one of the things i find myself talking to people about all the time is it's okay to sit in a negative emotion it's okay to feel it you know if you're going through something it's normal to come down a bit and feel a bit depressed and that could obviously be a clinical depression but it doesn't need to be like a clinical depression it can just be low mood so that language Andrew was really interesting hearing you say I don't know if I've got the language to discuss that as those floodgates have opened I think what you're saying there Jonathan is there's that jump to well, how do we fix it all Whereas actually it's a normal part of human experience. Obviously it can get out of balance and have devastating consequences. But is there is there space, do you think, for educating people how we sit with these less pleasant feelings, how we sit in that sadness or that anxiety? I do, do you know, I just it just frustrates me to death because I think that as part why why is this not actually a key component in school curriculum? Why is not every child actually put through a counselling training effectively? Why not? Because all those skills and all that sort of thinking, once you once you shed the jargon around it, is is just about being a human being. There's there's nothing more to it. You know, everybody has depression. 
the most creative people in the world are some of the biggest depressives because one way to think about that is because the energy needs to be withdrawn sometimes from the outside to feed the roots inside to make something new grow and happen. So that's one very useful thing to say about depression, that actually it's a very useful state to be in as long as you don't panic about it. So I think this this whole there's a whole field there which could be opened up for much younger people so that by the time they get to adulthood, they you know, it's it's just every day. Let's talk about it. I think you're absolutely right, Jonathan. I mean, the best poetry, art, everything, music hasn't come from people being joyful and happy, hasn't it? It's come from people uh, in the opposite state. And, and I think you're right as well, Alice, that normalising a lot of this is important. So we've started to talk about it more, which I think perhaps has caused some people to think that every time they're sad, we must do something about it straight away. It's terrible. They can't be here. We must do something to change our mood to be happy and light. And as we've all said there, that's not how, how it works. That's not always what's needed. Sometimes you just have to sit with it. And that's a large part of having the right vocabulary, but also the right expectations, you know, around it's okay if someone's looking a little bit glum, as long as it, it's not got too far. And as long as they know they've got someone to talk to if they need to, then we trust them to to sit with it and, you know, get what they need from it and move through it. When you were saying there, why don't we teach these skills in schools? That's that's such a key point, isn't it? Why, why don't we? And it's sometimes uh, one of the things is we teach like what do we value what do we put meaning on and it's usually the things that we can test for in in schools unfortunately it's the things that we we can put a score against because how do we improve uh, outcomes in schools the measurable things are exam results and 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 standardized assessments they're the measurables which Mm -hmm. is why one of the things that prior to working at tree of knowledge the the well-being surveys that they have it was like well here's actually if we're looking at well-being then we have an importance on it is there a way of of gathering information there so we can see the impact of of what we're doing and and, and the, the culture in our building and yeah why don't we why don't we teach these skills more often because teachers are trying to do it that's the thing I think in, in schools teachers and schools are putting such high value on, on these skills but um how do you get recognition for for what you're doing when it's not something which is is measured in the same way as your your math scores or or, or English results yeah it requires a big change around, doesn't it, to to let that that sort of stuff in, I think. And some of the frustrations come from the fact, like, I think, I, 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 as a parent, when I think about my children going through school, yes, I want them to be able to read and write and solve problems, but really I want them to be able to manage their emotions. I want them to know how to take care of their physical and mental well-being. Like it's... It's something that as parents, that's, yes, we obviously have some parents like, no, you're going to go and you're going to do this thing and it's going to be wonderful and you're going to make lots of money. But I think the majority of parents would rather their kids were just able to, I almost said their kids were happy. I don't even mean that. You know, I, I would rather they came out able to be happy, but also able to deal with the challenges that come up and go through tough things and be able to build resilience and have like real resilience rather than like sticking plaster resilience. I think we see a lot of that reactive stuff is, oh, well, if something's wrong, we must fix it. But actually, if something is wrong, that, as you say, Jonathan, sitting in it, taking a bit of time, taking that step back, working out what that feeling is, it's much more valuable in terms of a life skill than than a lot of the things that we're testing for. I mean, we had a visit from Scottish government to one of the schools we were in. A little boy was posted on the door to let the minister in 
and he introduced himself, said, hello, I'm, I'm in P1 and I've got ma anger management issues. And ever since we heard that, we thought, well, actually, the thing not to do is give people a whole load of uh, jargon to talk and make them think that's that's sorted and identified consequently. So it's not that. But there are there are there's a lot of stuff out there. There's whole there's courses in counseling skills, for instance, which could easily be adapted, could probably even be measured in schools in some way as a, a success or failure. I was helping um, a, a friend with an application form and, and you'll know like looking for teacher posts, it was a case of looking through and all the things that, that stood out and the, any other information at the end of the application form. It, it commented that they, they had undertaken the, the mental health champion uh, training. And I was like, get that at the first paragraph. That is the thing. Like if I'm a teacher, if we're doing applications, if I'm employing someone in my school, that should be the first thing. Yeah. Everyone should have that. And, and it's courses like that, which place to be offer, which are, are hopefully a small part because hopefully these become huge. Because why doesn't, why is every teacher in initial teacher education not doing those courses? Why, why is every teacher who's in practice not doing those courses? Why are we not? Oh, because I, see here I watched you present uh, at the ex Education Expo earlier in the year and after watching, I was like, why is every school not got uh, someone in there who can help? Uh, so why, what is it that we need to do? If we had a magic wand, what would be the, the things that we could do? Great question. I think that the thing, the first thing I wanted to say, just to address the conversation that was happening just now is about how I remember when I was a teacher and every problem that anyone could put their, put their finger on out there in the, in the world, the answer was always more education in schools. <laughs> let's educate people about this. Let's educate them about that. Let's educate them about modern slavery, about this, about that. Also, anything the politicians would talk about, the answer was always more education. And, you know, I would roll my eyes as a teacher saying, well, how many hours do you think we've got in the school day to fit in every, you know, uh, uh, teaching about every problem out there in the world, you know, um, budgeting and you name it, as I say, there's, it comes back to let's do it in school. So the thing, and it's tempting, you know, it's, it's the easy answer in some ways, let's teach all this in schools, but actually it's about a way of being, not a, a subject that needs to be taught separately yes. as part of the curriculum. You know, it's, it's as Jonathan said before, this is about being a well-rounded human being. It's not about something you have to do or specifically learn about. So you said, what would you do if you had a magic wand? Well, what we want to do is have mentally healthy schools is how we call it. It's not about addressing problems. It's having school as a place where every young person goes and is in a mentally healthy environment where they understand how to manage their own health, just as part of osmosis, as part of being in this environment, seeing how it's done and understanding how to be because of the people around them, because of the access they've got to places to talk, because of the staff in that school who have support for themselves and who have in their initial teacher education, Andrew, and that's a really crucial point. We would love to see every student teacher have access to, first of all, specialist uh, input around children's mental health. So they have a basic understanding of it. That includes a Mental Health Champions Foundation program, and secondly, access to a reflective space, like Jonathan was talking about earlier, for their own experiences to unpack what happens when they go on placement. And for the first time in their lives, they're a teacher in a classroom and to understand, well, OK, what emotions did you feel in that time? Why? What, what made those emotions come up? How could you manage them next time to really understand what's happening for them in that really emotionally charged environment, which a classroom often is in a school often is you know we underestimate I think the emotional impact of just being in that environment so if you had a mental if every school was able to be a mentally healthy place where you went in and it didn't have this supercharged anxious busyness but it had a, a stable calm open 
you know, uh, atmosphere, how much better would that be? It doesn't need to be something on the curriculum. It's just a place where you can be, hence sort of a place to be, where you can be without, yeah. Um, yeah, without having to be somebody different or without having to absorb emotions which are unhelpful. It's really, it's really well said. I think that's important. It is. Because I think, I don't know if you know this thing, there's a thing called the institutional imperative, which Warren Buffett, the investor of all people, talks about. And that is that if if you're an institution, for instance, that makes marmite, the only thing you can do is make more marmite. That's your development. And I guess if you're school, the thing that you're going to do more of is teaching. And I think you're right to remind me, certainly, Sahir, that actually the thing is about being. It's not about doing something. It's about being being at ease in your own skin, in every sense of that word, and how you facilitate that for for children and staff. I couldn't agree more. And I think Andrew and I could quite easily sit and pick your brains all day. But Andrew, what's your what's your big takeaway today, Andrew, from listening to this conversation? I was thinking we need a fifth capacity in the curriculum. That's what I was thinking. It's like we've got four, but I don't know if any of the four. Uh, sufficiently put, uh, they, they probably do, but like just to make it really clear, why, why don't we introduce a fifth capacity we, uh, and we, we we focus on mentally healthy schools because that's that's what I, I don't think you'd find anyone who would argue against that that's that's a, 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 a real focus of 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 Scotland. Like why why not? So that's why I'm going I'm going to go and re write a letter. We'll get a fifth capacity, but I, I don't mean to. I just think that's the importance. That's the importance that we want placed on this from from all levels, from all stakeholders, for all stakeholders as well. Uh, I think the work that, that you're doing is is brilliant. I, I would love to find out more about it. So I, I would ask so many more questions and, and we'll continue to do so in the, the months ahead. And if our listeners are interested in finding out more about you and your, the services you offer, where where do we signpost them to? How do they find out more? Well, you can go, um, first of all, to the Place to Be website would be a great place to start. That mentally, uh, Mental Health Champions Foundation programme that Andrew talked about is available for free for all teachers. Um, so if you're a teacher in Scotland who is listening or a teacher in England, you can just go onto our Place to Be website, find the next cohort and sign up. That is available. Uh, we've committed to that for, for the foreseeable future. And if you want to find out more specifically about the work in Scotland or contact myself and Jonathan, the email address is scotland at placetobe.org.uk. And that'll come through to us. Please do get in touch. We'd love to keep that conversation going. We'd love to hear about what's happening with you and in your schools. Um, and we'd love to tell you more about Place to Be if you're interested. Brilliant. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time today and for joining us. I hope you've uh, enjoyed having a space to talk yeah. today. And hopefully our listeners have had a, an enjoyable space to listen today on a really important topic. Thank you both for joining us. And Thanks. we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you again to Jonathan and Sahir. What a brilliant episode and we are so fortunate to get the chance to fire so many questions at them. I really could have asked more questions. I could have sat for another hour. Uh, so I appreciate the time we've had this week. In the show notes, what I'll do is I will share the links that, that they have pointed us in the direction of. So the Place to Be website, the Mental Health Champion Foundation and the email address for Sahir and Jonathan. And as always, I'll put Alice and I's Twitter handles in there as well as that of Tree of Knowledge. If you want to follow us, please do it. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share, please comment, please let us know as it's always great to hear how, how we're impacting uh, as well as, as continuing our professional learning. 
So thank you for listening and we'll see you again next week.